So welcome to this edition of On The Pulse, in which CMS experts provide updates on the key developments bringing innovation and disruption to the life sciences and healthcare sector. I'm your host, Nick Beckett. Today, we're looking into the contentious areas of product liability and medical malpractice, and I'm delighted to be joined by three of the CMS life sciences specialists who regularly advise clients in this sector. So we have David Bridge from the UK, Laura Opilio from Italy, and Elena Wadsworth from the UK. So welcome to all three of you. So with COVID, we're living in interesting times, obviously. I think there's a lot of people uh, who are you know, concerned, who are worried, who are in need of support and help, medical assistance. And I think on the one hand, the healthcare professionals and the, the pharmaceutical companies are seen as, as the saviors. We have the, the Thursday clap for the NHS in the, U, in the UK and the, uh, in Italy, I think maybe more impressive opera singing from balconies and things like that. Um, and I think, you know, the pharmaceutical companies through this have you know, improved their reputation. Everyone's needing these vaccines. So on the one hand, lots of sort of positives coming through. But there's also substantial risks, I think, there in, in two specific areas. In the area of medical negligence, we're seeing doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals who are playing out of position and being asked to do things that they're not normally um, asked to do without sometimes, you know, substantial experience in some areas. We're seeing doctors being called out of retirement. Um, we see hospitals with, you know, being overrun and lacking capacity, lacking equipment. Uh, and I think this is not only impacting on obviously the COVID patients, but also non-COVID patients. Sometimes their procedures, elective surgery, those sorts of things are being pushed back. So, you know, there's potential implications here, I think, on a, on a medical negligence, medical malpractice basis. But we also then see on product liability, you're seeing a lot of non-specialist life sciences companies coming into the space. You're seeing ventilators being made by you know, car manufacturers. You're seeing PPE equipment, masks being made by textile manufacturers and others. So, you know, again, this brings about further areas of risk. We're seeing experimental use and compassionate use of drugs for treatment that haven't been fully tested, that haven't necessarily been approved for certain indications. But, you know, the world is desperate and these in desperate times where, you know, we, we're, we're turning to whatever may be available. And, and clinical trials for vaccines are being rushed through quicker than ever before. And again, all of this brings risk. And I was reading um, just in preparation for today, I was reading um, the CMS International Disputes Digest and Laura um, wrote a nice article in it on the impact of COVID. Um, I just want to read the, the heading from it. It says the COVID-19 health emergency is causing incalculable economic losses to businesses and individuals. In periods of great crisis like this one, some parties will inevitably seek to apportion blame for those losses or pursue claims in relation to them. As Dwight D. Eisenhower remarked, the search for a scapegoat is the easiest of all hunting expeditions. As a result, we expect a substantial increase in conflicts and disputes, which will undoubtedly impact the insurance industry. In short, companies will face an explosion of insurance claims in the coming months. So there's a huge area of risk here, and I'd like to look at these two areas separately. I'd like to begin, I think, with medical malpractice. And I think probably just to set the scene, it might be helpful to just look at the, the underlying law here, the foundation of of law that um, you know that, that, that people operating in this area need to be aware aware of. So maybe Elena, we could start in the UK if you could just give us a, a high level overview of um, of the, the the law there. 
Sure. So medical malpractice is better known in the UK as medical negligence or clinical negligence. Uh, generally, a duty of care is owed by a medical professional to their patient. And in order to establish a successful um, med mal or clin neg claim, the patient or the claimant has to prove that the duty of care owed has been breached, which is that the care provided by the medical professional fell below that owed, uh, fell below the required standard of care the required standard being the standard of other professionals practicing in the same field. Secondly, causation has to be established, which is a but for test, and the patient or claimant has to prove that they would have not suffered that they would have suffered the injury, that, sorry, they would not have suffered the injury but for the medical professional's negligence. Currently, to protect themselves against claims, medical professionals will either be a member of a medical defence organisation, which prov will provide their indemnity cover, or will have taken out separate insurance cover. Limitation, i.e. the time allowed to bring a claim, also differs between the, the three jurisdictions within the UK. For example, whereas a claimant has three years to bring a claim in England and Wales, in Ireland they only have two years. And Laura, in, in Italy, how does, how does that compare to the UK? In Italy, the situation is a bit more complex in the sense that in the last 10 years, uh, the legislation has been deeply uh, reformed in order to uh, decrease the number of med mal claims brought against public hospitals, private clinics and doctors, and also to uh, reduce the use of defensive medicine, which implies a huge cost for the public health care system. In Italy, um, all the citizens can afford the treatment uh, from public hospitals. So defensive medicine became a real problem. Uh, we have a so-called double-track system, which means that we have a criminal liability of doctors in case of fraud or gross negligence. The liability is assessed by a criminal court and damages are awarded afterward by the same criminal court or by a civil court and there is also a civil liability uh, of the public hospital the private clinic um, uh, which is uh, assessed by a civil court uh, the liability of the doctor apart from the clinic, uh, the criminal liability is a tort liability on the assumption that the contractual link is established between uh, the patient and the clinic or the hospital. So the liability of the doctor is a tort liability. This is a very important difference uh, with respect to the burden of proof. In case of tort liability, the burden of proof lies on the patient. Is the patient who has to um, show that the medical treatment uh, was negligent, was not correct, uh, and that the injuries or the disease uh, was caused by that treatment. Uh, so the casual link has to be proved by the patient. In case of contractual liability, the burden of proof lies on the hospital or on the private clinic. Uh, uh, so they have to prove that the treatment uh, which was uh, um, applied uh, to the patient uh, was the proper one. So it's much more easier for a patient uh, to uh, claim damages against an hospital uh, or a clinic uh, 
uh, in comparison with the claim brought against the doctor because the, the burden of proof uh, is uh, completely different. Also, the time limitation is 10 years for contractual obligation as five years uh, for tort liability. So this was intended to protect doctors uh, and uh, uh, give more, more uh, liability to the clinical, uh, to the clinics uh, and the, the hospitals. And David, what, what about other jurisdictions? Do they follow the UK more or, or, or Italy? Um, well, f- further afield, if we take um, the UAE, uh, for example, uh, I think it's fair to say that that does have some similarities with the Italian approach, because in, in the UAE, the doctor-patient relationship is more of a contractual one. Uh, and it's therefore seen as a breach of contract as opposed to a breach of duty if the doctor's found to have made um, what's called a medical error, as it's referred to in the UAE. And there are essentially three things you've got to prove. Firstly, you've got to show that there's one, a medical error. Um, secondly, you've got to show that that error causes damage. Uh, and then thirdly, as a result of that damage, the, the patient has suffered a loss. And of those three elements, the, the UAE courts, in our experience, um, typically don't place quite as much emphasis on causation. It, it, the focus is more on um, showing that fault and, and damage has occurred. And we've also seen in the UAE in the last year a um, cabinet um, decision known as the executive decision, which is intended to uh, bring in new provisions to uh, define and refine the liability of medical professionals in greater detail and and make it easier to bring these sorts of claims. So, for example, you can now bring claims um, to health authorities online. And there's also a, a positive obligation on an entity called the Medical Liability Committee in the UAE to intervene and analyse each complaint. And if we look beyond the UAE as well to, to the US, um, in the US, um, it's very much an approach that's dependent upon which states uh, you're in. Um, generally, you've got a similar approach in that you've got to show a, substan- a substandard medical ch- uh, care resulted in an injury. And the patient's got to prove um, the main elements that you would need to prove typically in the UK. So breach of a duty and and a causal link between the breach of duty and and the loss. But the big difference in the US, of course, is the damages aspect, because in the US, um, you know, they approach damages on a very different basis. You are departing from the compensatory uh, principle. And then if we look at other jurisdictions, Australia, Singapore, very similar to the UK position is development of the Commonwealth approach. Great. Okay. Well, thank you for that. That's a helpful sort of underpinning to the to the rest of the session. Um, so I'd like to turn then to look at um, you know the impact of COVID. How how has it changed things in terms of medical malpractice in different jurisdictions? So maybe uh, let's start with Laura on that one for Italy. Yes, due to the COVID, uh, we can foresee uh, an increase of medical claims uh, brought against public hospitals and doctors. Uh, For sure, when the COVID emergency started in Italy, hospitals were not uh, um, equipped uh, to cope with this um, emergency. So uh, patients could uh, bring claims based on the lack of organization of the hospitals, because, for instance, many hospitalized patients were infected while they were at the hospital by doctors or nurses because the COVID patients were not 
uh, immediately um, isolated from other patients. Uh, there was a lack of doctors, so the number of patients per, per doctor uh, was uh, too, too high. And also the, the equipment of the hospitals were not sufficient. Uh, uh, some doctors uh, uh, already retired uh, were requested uh, to uh, pay assistance to the patients on a voluntary basis. Some doctors uh, were not uh, experienced in the field and notwithstanding that they were requested to treat uh, COVID patients. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned before, Nick, uh, uh, some drugs uh, were used off-label, so there was not a specific indication to treat COVID uh, with these medicines, uh, but the, the doctors uh, uh, used these medicines on the basis of experience of other countries uh, because they resulted to be useful uh, or they believed uh, they could be useful for the treatment. Uh, um, some hospitals asked for uh, the authorization to use uh, um, drugs uh, which, are, which were not marketed in Italy uh, on a compassionate basis. Uh, at, at the first uh, times, in the first two months, uh, there was no um, unique uh, commission to authorize the importation of these drugs. So, any hospital uh, did it uh, on an individual basis uh, and there was no coordination at all. So uh, considering this situation, uh, it is possible that some patients uh, or unfortunately the relatives uh, of patients who died uh, will claim damages uh, against uh, the public hospitals uh, and against doctors. Also, private clinics uh, might be affected because, uh, for instance, in some uh, places where whole people uh, used to live, uh, the um, diffusion of the disease uh, was so quick uh, that, unfortunately, many patients uh, died. So we can really foresee an increase uh, of claims uh, which will be uh, brought uh, against the hospital and doctors uh, and private clinics. Uh, um, we, the government discussed about the possibility to introduce uh, uh, an immunity shield to protect uh, doctors and medical institutions. Uh, this in the end was not approved because the matter is really complex. Not only doctors, uh, uh, but also directors uh, of hospitals uh, and clinics uh, and also the administrative staff uh, uh, should be uh, protected. Uh, um, by the legislation, so the, the matter is still under discussion uh, at the Parliament and we really hope that in the end uh, a decision uh, will be taken because this climate of uncertainty uh, is very difficult uh, to cope with uh, by the professionals. And Elena, how has uh, Covid impacted medical malpractice in the UK? So similar to Italy, we also have examples of products being um, used off-label. We've also had a number of doctors and nurses come back from retirement um, to be used to, to assist the NHS with treatments. 
Um, due to many medical professionals acting outside of their usual day-to-day -day job and therefore outside of their expertise, there has been discussion around giving doctors immunity from negligence claims arising from treatment given during the coronavirus crisis. Um, this is to try to prevent huge numbers of claims being brought against medical professionals at a time when without them the fatality figures may well have been somewhat higher than they actually uh, have been to date. Um, there is also talk of immunity because of the strain this will put on NHS funds and the taxpayer at a time when the economy is trying to recover. Um, further, there has also been talks and calls on the government to bring in emergency laws so doctors are protected from criminal and regulatory investigation in relation to their treatment of patients during the crisis, uh, particularly where a decision or outcome is concerned, which is the result of poor PPE provision, uh, which appeared to be the case in the UK, uh, certainly at the start of the crisis. Um, currently in the UK, the Coronavirus Act 2020, which was brought into force extremely swiftly when we were faced with a pandemic, addresses those medical professionals who offer their services during the crisis. However, it only extends indemnity cover to those medical professionals acting outside of their expertise, and it does not mean that, mean that they are immune from such claims that may arise from um, sorry, from acting outside of their expertise. Um, there has also been discussions around claims which may arise indirectly from the coronavirus crisis. For example, those patients whose treatment was put on hold or delayed due to the crisis, for example, cancer patients. So David, what, what about the US? I read, I think there was um, discussion of, of maybe a blanket form of immunity there. Yeah, I mean, the, the US has got its own particular challenges as I think has been well reported at the moment. And it's a matter for each state in the US, as I mentioned, as to how they respond to that. Um, and it has been reported that as of the 30th of June, there were some 23 states that had um, adopted laws which provide immunity to medical professionals and hospitals during the crisis. So New York is, is a state, for example, that's done that. Um, there's also been some public commentary from um, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who's um, said that he wouldn't let healthcare heroes emerge from this crisis facing a tidal wave of medical malpractice claims. And he's talking about raising the liability threshold for these sorts of coronavirus related claims. And I think we're going to see in the future the, the number of states that change their immunity position um, on the rise. And in addition, um, there's been a very recent uh, US Department of Health um, declaration that provides a broad-based legal immunity under federal and state law for manufacturers, suppliers, administrators of products and technologies used to combat COVID-19. And that protection lasts at the moment until the 1st of October 2024. And what, what about other jurisdictions, David? Are, are they following a similar pattern to that? Uh, not, not yet. So I've mentioned the UAE. Um, there hasn't really been much discussion in the UAE about immunity, although there have been some very uh, prestigious uh, hospitals. So the Cleveland Clinic in Abu Dhabi is part of the Cleveland Clinic Foundation in the USA has published some guidance on some of these medical professionals that are volunteering, so perhaps coming out of retirement to help. And it's suggested that whilst there's no immunity for them, there'll be full medical malpractice insurance cover for anyone who's volunteered. Um, if you look further afield to Australia, again, there's been no discussion yet with regard to uh, immunity, but there have been some high profile incidents um, that are likely to fuel claims. So the, the Ruby Princess affair, which was the incident with the cruise ship docking 
uh, without passengers having um, health screening uh, has given rise to some potential claims that are being marshalled on a, a class action basis at the moment, uh, potentially against the ship's operator and even the government uh, of Australia in relation to that decision. So we, we may well see a change in approach in relation to immunity. Uh, and similarly, Singapore, there hasn't yet been that debate, um, but I uh, would watch this space because we may hear something on that in the not too distant future. So let's move on then to the other area of risk that we were outlining at the beginning, that of product liability. And again, I think probably would be helpful just to begin with a short overview, high level overview of the, the basic law. So maybe David will start with the UK and, and you know what options an individual might have if they're, if they're harmed by a product there. Sure. So the, the starting point in the UK and, and the key piece of legislation is the Consumer Protection Act 1987, the CPA, and that deals with defective products and what happens if they cause injury. So if a consumer uses a product and they suffer injury as a result of a defect, they can claim under this act without needing to prove fault or blame for the damage caused. So it's a strict liability approach. Um, the, the definition of product under the CPA is very wide. It includes um, the goods in question, of course, and also components of goods. And a product is considered defective if its safety is uh, not such as people are generally entitled to expect. And if you're a consumer that's been affected and you're looking at who you might uh, pursue an action, you've got a, a number of options. So a claim can be brought potentially against the producers. So that's usually the manufacturer of the product. Uh, own branders, those who put their um, name or, or trademark on the product, or an importer into the EU from a non-EU country, or if actually the consumer doesn't know the identity of any of those parties, they could also bring a claim against the supplier. Um, there's a time limit in, in place, so there's a three-year limitation period from the date of damage or injury or when that person um, became aware of their possible claim. And as I mentioned, in England, damages are awarded on a compensatory basis. So the aim is to put the consumer uh, back in the position as if the product hadn't been defective. Um, but there is no cap on liability, but there is a 10-year log stop date. So from the date of supply of the product, you've got 10 years uh, in which to pursue uh, your action. Uh, although liability under the CPA is strict, there are some defences available. Um, so if, for example, the defect was due to compliance with the legal obligation that was imposed at the time, or um, the so-called development risks uh, defence, which is where a producer argues that um, the state of scientific or technical knowledge was such that at the time they couldn't have been expected to discover the defect um, when the product was in their um, control. And then the final thing I'll just mention is separate from the CPA, um, you've got the Consumer Rights Act 2015 in the UK that gives consumers contractual rights uh, and protections for defective products and services. And Laura, how, do, how does the uh, situation in Italy compare to that? The situation is similar in the sense that we also apply a strict liability uh, principle for product liability claims. Um, as far as the medical devices are concerned, we implemented the three uh, European directives uh, on uh, medical devices, uh, in vitro diagnostic devices uh, and active in plantable devices. Uh, unfortunately, this legislation uh, became outdated uh, very quickly because it didn't provide for sufficient protection from, for consumers. Uh, the devices were not traceable 
and uh, the um, technical uh, standard couldn't be uh, properly assessed in the time. So the European uh, um, uh, legislation was amended. The new medical devices regulation should have come into force. Unfortunately, due, due to the coronavirus situation, uh, it was decided to postpone the entry into force uh, of the new regulation, which will now come into force uh, in May, uh, on the 26th of May 2021. Up to that time, uh, the medical devices uh, can be still uh, placed into market uh, uh, according to the old rules uh, uh, that do not provide for a clear definition of defectiveness. Uh, while the new regulation uh, introduces uh, this, this concept uh, of defective uh, specifically for medical devices uh, and also introduce a mechanism of traceability of the devices uh, uh, which will be enforced and protect the consumers uh, in, in a more serious way. Patients are allowed to claim damage compensation according to the national rules. Uh, and as I mentioned before, according to Italian law, uh, there is a um, principle of strict liability, uh, similarly as I in the UK so that uh, the producer, the importer and the distributor are liable for any defect uh, of, the, of the product. Uh, so the situation from this point of view is, is quite similar, I would say. David, forgive me, I'm, I'm going to come to you again as our, our sort of resident <laughs> international disputes expert. But any any uh, guide on, on other jurisdictions and the situation there? Sure. So I'll, I'll mention two. So Singapore um, doesn't itself have strict liability legislation for defective products. Um, there are um, laws which regulate the safety uh, standards to which consumer goods must conform, and there are fines that apply if they don't. And a buyer can bring a claim uh, under contract law or in negligence. In the US, um, the product liability law is a mix of states, federal and common law. There's no single product liability statute which governs everything. Um, but um, the rules vary from state to state uh, and you can bring a claim. Um, in the US, one of the main features of litigation is class action. So you see a lot of um, group litigation that's pursued. Um, very common. We've seen a proliferation of that sort of type of dispute that's emerging and making its way over into Europe too. Uh, and I think we're going to see more of that to come. Um, if you look at the UAE, the Middle East, um, class action is a very alien concept there. And they're not recognised, uh, so a claimant would need to pursue a claim individually. But one of the barriers um, to entry for people to do that, um, particularly in the UK, is the, the cost of litigation. Whereas in the e in the UAE, um, the court fees are typically much lower uh, and can be, you know, a few thousand dirham just to pursue the case. So that that's not in and of itself a, a problem. So I'd like then to turn to again look at the impact of COVID on this. So, um, you know, we see, for example, ventilators being, you know, produced at a really rapid, rapid rate. So how is, you know, what are the implications of that, for example, in the UK, Elena? Um, so at the beginning of lockdown, the government asked for help in making ventilators and specifically rapidly manufactured ventilator systems or RMVS for short. Um, companies stepped outside of their normal expertise to do this. 
For example, companies who normally manufactured other products, such as cars, pivoted to producing ventilators, making it more of a risk for them to take on. Uh, to encourage production, the government stated that it would indemnify the designers and manufacturers of these ventilators against any product liability claims. Uh, however, the exact terms of these indemnities is confidential as between the parties. So it's not clear if the indemnities are subject to a cap and if they are what that cap is. The UK government did not extend this uh, indemnity to beyond ventilators, for example, to PPE or to other medical devices such as COVID-19 testing kits. Uh, it's also important to remember that indemnities do not prevent claims from being made. So there's still a liability, of course, for the company to take on. And what, what about Italy, Lara? I assume we've seen a, a surge in demand for PPE equipment there as well. Yes, exactly. Especially at the beginning of the emergency, uh, we immediately ran short uh, of PPE and also medical uh, protection uh, um, devices like masks, uh, gloves, uh, and uh, of course ventilators, uh, lab coats. Uh, um, it was very difficult to import these products from abroad, uh, given the, the fact that, of course, uh, all the countries were preparing themselves for the emergency. Um, so in the end, the government uh, authorized uh, the production uh, of these devices in Italy and also funded the, 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 the production in Italy. And the uh, quality assessment procedures uh, was derogated, notwithstanding that the producer had to uh, certify that the, pro the production was made according to the health and safety regulation rules. Uh, the government uh, entrusted INAIL, which is a public insurance entity aimed at protecting workers and employees, uh, to validate uh, the, the sale of these equipments. So the producer um, gave a self-declaration by which they um, assured that the, the products were manufactured according to the good manufacturing procedures and they had to show which tests uh, were carried out on the products. Uh, on the basis of this self-declaration, uh, the devices uh, were put on the market. Uh, this was done also in compliance with what the European Committee um, uh, authorized because uh, um, recommendation was passed uh, by which the countries uh, were allowed uh, in uh, emergency situation to derogate uh, from the ordinary procedure uh, before placing on the market uh, these devices. Of course, this can be done just for a very limited uh, period of time, uh, enough to allow the normal procedure, procedure to be reinstalled. Um, but this was the, the situation at the time. This will probably um, give rise uh, to possible claims uh, uh, against the produ producers uh, if the medical devices uh, result in the future to be not compliant uh, with the good manufacturing rules. And Elena, did the did the UK allow for any? derogations or, or, or uh, you know, make any changes to, to allow for medicines and medical devices to be made available more quickly? 
Uh, yes, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, or MIHRA, which is the body responsible for regulating medicines and medical devices, played a role in relaxing rules wherever possible. Uh, in the pandemic, approval for medical devices was fast-tracked, and devices not marked with the CE stamp can be used if it is in the interest of protecting public health. The MHRA has also released guidance that the rapidly manufactured ventilators will not bear the CE marking and were approved using the exceptional use channel. Additionally, the MHRA recognised it was essential to use some devices, for example, anaesthetic machines as ventilators um, off-label during the pandemic. However, the appropriate risk assessment still needed to take place to document the off-label use. And David, have any other jurisdictions adopted a similar sort of relaxation of, of requirements? Uh, yeah, yes, we, we've seen other jurisdictions um, taking a similar approach. Um, so, for example, in, in the US, they've relaxed certain requirements. And, for example, um, they've implemented emergency use authorization um, with the aim of uh, increasing the availability of ventilators. Uh, and in doing so, they've authorized the use of ventilators that are not currently marketed in the US. And on the drug side, we've seen um, the FDA, the Food Drug Administration, has authorised the emergency use of the drug uh, remdesivir, which I'm sure you've uh, read about. Um, that's not a drug that's approved by the FDA, but it's now being used for treating hospitalised patients with severe COVID-19. And it's also allowed the US to buy up in very large quantities um, the stock of that drug for the next uh, few months ahead. So I think we're seeing then that COVID you know, is playing a major uh, role in shaping and impacting both medical malpractice and also product liability. And I think it brings challenges to, you know, a lot of uh, people in, you know, involved to the to the regulators, I guess, and those involved in public policy. It's always going to be about trying to find a balance, um, trying to, you know, uh, find the risk benefit equation to, to have a, a positive uh, outcome for that and to find acceptable safety, maybe shortening the time frame for clinical trials, maybe increasing post-marketing surveillance, pharmacovigilance, those sorts of things, and ensuring, you know, a comfort on a sufficient benefit in what may well be an experimental drug or a very quickly developed vaccine, those sorts of things. So I think there are challenges on the from the regulator and public sort of policy side, um, but there are obviously challenges for companies operating you know, in this space and in these uh, COVID times. And I wonder, David, you know, have you got any advice to companies on what they can practically do to, to sort of minimise risk in these areas? Yes, so the, those companies are obviously operating in a highly regulated environment. And I think first and foremost, uh, as a first line of defence, you've got to consider good regulatory compliance and do everything possible to try to get it right, particularly with the novel regime um, to grapple with. And that includes also monitoring uh, regulatory positions for changes that might be both positive and negative. And, and also importantly, documenting everything, including any derogations, exemptions or permissions uh, when you're dealing with the regulator if they give leniencies uh, in relation to a particular product. And I think where possible, um, if you need it, ask for the regulatory authorities to clarify their position in writing. I think it's also really critical to consider proactively addressing um, potential future facets of a liability claim, including marketing and labelling. Uh, and you might be presenting the product to make clear it's supplied during the time of the pandemic or specifically for the purpose of treating COVID-19. 
uh, and, and generally look at the risk profile of each of the proposed actions, uh, product lines and pivots uh, as they're likely to be unique in the current circumstances. If you're looking at a long-term strategy for the supplying of products uh, and doing so in the supply chain, I think it's important to consider how that might be limited to the extent of the current pandemic. And if you're involved in any active litigation, it's really important to consider the impact of the pandemic on your liability profile and defences. And then the, the final thing I will just say, uh, and this will probably touch on uh, what Elaine is going to talk about, is look at the insurance position in terms of uh, repurposing or pivoting of business products, supplies, uh, manufacturing or any change to your business. Yes, so to assist with countering some of the risks that David has just mentioned, uh, companies can look to their medical negligence or their product liability insurance coverages. However, before agreeing to offer medical services outside of the company's usual offering or switching to manufacturing new products, they should ensure that the cover they have in place is appropriate and extends to what they are looking to offer. For example, a vehicle manufacturer is unlikely to be insured for producing medical devices without an extension to their existing coverage. Further, companies will need to ensure that any insurance or indemnity provisions in supply contracts for such medical services or products dovetail with their insurance arrangements and do not leave them exposed to claims they believe to be covered by their insurance or the indemnity arrangement under the contract. We have seen a number of examples already in supply contracts that would leave corporate exposed where insurance would not pick up the risk that they contractually believe it will. To help mitigate that risk, corporates are always well advised to engage early with their insurance brokers and their insurers to allow sufficient time to negotiate any necessary amendments either to the insurance coverage where possible and or to the supply contract. Sound advice, so engage the experts early. So thanks to all of you, fascinating discussions. Uh, thank you for joining us for this edition of On The Pulse. We hope you found our discussions to be thought provoking and insightful. If you'd like to discuss any of the topics covered, please do get in touch. To find out more about On The Pulse and CMS's Global Life Sciences and Healthcare Group, visit cms.law. Audio versions of On The Pulse are available through your usual podcast store.